Good morning. Good morning. Brian prayed for me enough times that I am convinced that he is convinced that I need all the help I can get. Not so, not so. In this assessment, he is absolutely right. And therefore, I follow him in going before God in prayer. Lord God, you know good and well I can't do this. Oh, I can give information, I can teach. But you know good and well that the life-giving work of raising dead people can only be done by your Holy Spirit. <clears throat> you know that unless you inhabit your word, we'll just listen, enjoy it, and go home unaffected. I'm not here for that. And I ask you to give life. Not just information, life. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in the scriptures to Exodus chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15, in which we will find out what it's like to know God on a first-name basis. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which would later become the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him and said out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. That in Hebrew is hineni. Behold me. Remember that. Say, hineni. Then he said, do not come here. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, 
and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, I am who I am has sent me to you. God said also to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Those of you who were with us last week may or may not remember that we spent last week dealing with the last couple of verses of Exodus 2 where we focused on four vital verbs. And I'm told that that's probably the most Presbyterian sermon title Brian has ever seen. Four vital verbs. Uh, these four vital verbs were describing God's actions at the end of Exodus 2. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And each one of these verbs showed a facet of God's engagement to be with His people, not merely to observe, but to be the life-giving presence among them. So God in Exodus 3 begins a major redemptive phase in his dealings with the sons of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to lead them out of their bondage in Egypt. Now the rest of Exodus, which I will not cover today, the rest of Exodus deals with the mighty acts of God in bringing this redemption about. It's a gigantic, sweeping story of mighty deeds and mighty provisions and mighty promises. And all of you have known the general outline of it since you were children. We're only going to cover the first of these great redemptive events in this stage of Israelites' history. What's the first thing? The first saving event for God's people. What was the first saving event in your life? Indeed, what does it mean to be saved? To be saved is one thing. It happens when God makes himself known. Centuries later, no less a person is in Jesus Christ himself. He's going to be praying his great high priestly prayer to the Father. And he's going to define eternal life in these words. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what it is to have eternal life, to know God. That's all. That's it. Everything else about the Christian life is encapsulated in this life-dominating, life-consuming, soul-possessing intimacy face-to-face -face with the triune majesty. That's what it is to be saved. Now, the events of Exodus 3 are going to serve precisely this purpose. To give those dead in bondage, dead in ruin, life. By revealing the knowledge of God to them. All the great events that follow, the ones you learned about when you were little, little children. The plagues, the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the law at Sinai, the tabernacle, everything. Is simply the outworking and display of the great revelation that's summarized here. What is his name? Okay, let's get here. Let's get to this mountain. A little brief overview of the situation that got Moses to this mountain. 
He's a fugitive who's going to see God. Again, you learned as children that Moses was born during a genocide. He was hidden by his mother. He was saved by the daughter of his would-be murderer and raised as the grandson of a king. You learned of his concern for an oppressed Israelite and the vengeance he took on that oppressor and how he fled from the riches and privilege of Egypt to take up a promising career as a shepherd in the desert. And now, on a day which has been, up to this point, exactly like the previous 14,600 days, Moses tends to his sheep. And then he sees God. And commentators have a field day with this scene. They go bonkers and bananas with this. You see, God does not appear as a tall, noble oak or a cedar. He appears as a despised thorn bush. He takes on the identity of his slave, enslaved people. Despised. Looked down on. Contemptible. God here is ugly. And then the paradox. The bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. And again, the commentators go nuts. Millennia of interpreters see this as a picture drawn by God of enslaved Israel in the furnace of the brick kilns, in pain, but not consumed. The trials of slavery, they're refinements. They're purifying gold, removing dross, strengthening, building endurance, building trust. And God is with them in the trials. God is revealing his identity as one who is in the pain with us. Enduring the pain with us. With us. With us. Or is he? Is he really? God calls Moses and Moses replies with that same hineni, that same here I am, that had come twice from the lips of Abraham. That declaration of unwavering availability for God's purposes. That's what it means. I'm here. I'm available. I'm at your disposal. Remember when Abraham said that? What was going on when Abraham said, Hineni, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and do what? Kill him and set him on fire. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And then a little later, when Abraham is in this position with a knife over his red, he had ready to drop into the, the chest of his son. God says, Abraham, and he says, here I am. You want availability? How's this for availability? This is the son of the promise, Lord. You're supposed to bless the whole world through his son, but you told me to kill him, I'll do it. I'm available. Whatever your purposes are, that's the import of that word, here I am. And now Moses is taking that word. The man who will write that account and knows the penetrating power of that word is taking that word on his lips. Here I am. I am available. I am at your service. What does God say in response? Stay away. 
Moses does the most rational thing imaginable. He hides his face in fear. Every single person in the entire Bible who finds himself face to face in the presence of God does exactly the same thing and there are no exceptions to that rule. That is going to happen to you someday. Faith will become sight. You will see him for better or for worse. And no matter how for better it is, that's going to be terrifying to confront infinity and be confronted with absolute, searing, perfect holiness. Moses gives us a movie trailer of that event right there. What a paradox. I mean, for all of the love, for all of the intimacy that there is, exists between God and man, for all those wonderful verbs with which God reaches into the lives of His people, the creator-creature distinction is never negotiable. It never fades for a moment. God says, I am a thorn bush in flames. I am right there with you. I'm sharing in the humiliation and the oppression and the agony and the mud pits. But I am also a terrible holiness, which you may not approach. We are not equals. We are not the same. Take off your shoes. Come before me in reverence and in awe. Be every moment conscious that it is only by an infinite and unmerited mercy that you are not vaporized where you stand. The presence of God is dangerous. And you live in it. And in this context, God identifies himself. Look how he identifies himself. He does it in two ways. Once, he does it relationally. He does it in terms of his history with his people. Verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There is a history here, says God, a heritage we have a relationship that predates your birth. Your father Amram served me. The great patriarchs of old served me. For centuries, your whole family, your whole nation, your whole tribe has been created, has been gathered, has been nourished, has been grown, has been preserved by promises made and kept by me. Perhaps you haven't yet written down all the great stories that will someday form the book of Genesis, but you do know them. And you and I have communed here in prayer on this mountain without the vision of the bush, but face to face all the same. You know me. We have a history. But today's different. As of today, you're on a mission from God. Let's go back to the verbs, because that's what God does here. Remember those four verbs we had last week? In the run-up to the call, speaking out of the relationship, God uses three of those four verbs. Then the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of the taskmasters, and I know, remember how much we cherished that one last week, I know their sufferings. That everything they were going through, everything you are going through, is known to God. He knows it with you. He is intimately in the pain with you. The cross is not there for nothing. It's real. 
And then verse 8 gives us more of these wonderful verses. I have come down to deliver. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and to a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the God of the covenant. This is the God of the promises. This is the God of the relationship. Long silent, but never deaf. And now, behold, the cry of the people has come to me. And never blind, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And never inactive, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And never absent, I will be with you. I'm going to skip the debate where Moses tries to turn down the role. There's a lot of good theological meat in it, but I don't have all day. I'm just going to skip that. The presence of God refutes all the arguments. Moses, at the end of the debate, has a question. What's your name? Now, something funny about that question. Moses knows the name. Man has always known the name. Guess who was the first person to use the name Yahweh, the one we're going to get in verse 14, the first person to use that name referring to God. She, it, was, it was a woman. She was talking about God, not to him. But she used that name. How early do you think that was? How about, oh, I don't know, Rachel? Nope. Maybe uh, Sarah? Uh-uh. It was Eve. Genesis 4.1. I have gotten a man-child with the help of Yahweh. That's how early the name is known. So what is Moses doing asking that question after all those thousands of years when mankind has had that name and has used it? What he's doing is he's asking for a declaration of the character of God. He'll do this again in Exodus 34. Show me your glory. He's asking for a declaration, a proclamation, a display of who God is. He's asking the question, what does it mean to be God? What is that? What is this God relationship that you have? I have a, a general idea, but I'm asking you to open yourself up to me so that I can know you. I mean, really know you. What's going on? And God identifies himself again. Not in terms of his history, but in terms of his absolute self-contained being. And every time I deal with this verse, memory sends me back to RTS 1985, R.C. Sproul's Systematic Theology course. R.C. Sproul was a showman's showman in his classes. He, was, he, he might make you mad, he might make you want to crawl under the seat, but he never, ever bored anybody. And I remember the day that R.C. Sproul stood up in front of the class and said, I do not believe in the existence of God. I tell you, God does not exist. Now, we looked at him funny because we all happened to know that Dr. Sproul made a pretty good living writing books proving the opposite. That that was a major focus of his ministry. 
And we were kind of horrified to see so deep an apostasy happen right there in front of our eyes. But he kept pushing the point. And we kept asking, what do you mean? You, we know you believe in the existence of God. Here's one of your books saying you believe it. We know this. I was the one who got the question. Neil, where does the word exist comes from? Now, there had to be 30 guys in that class whose Latin was better than mine. But I was able to do something this elementary. Ex esse. To be out of. To derive your being from something outside yourself. Now, Dr. Sproul's sudden atheism made sense. God doesn't exist. Because existence is to get your being from outside of yourself. We all exist. We receive our being from outside ourselves. We are created and we are preserved by forces and means outside of ourselves. In philosophy, that's called contingent being. We depend on things, contingencies outside ourselves. God is what's called necessary being. Now, that doesn't mean you got to have him. That's true, but that's not what that word means in philosophy. Necessary being is something that is incapable of not being. Something that possesses the power of being within himself and depends on no one. That's the God that's being proclaimed in I am who I am. Beginningless, endless, unchangeable. Contrast that with the God you hear about in the 21st century. You see, we live in an age of what I might call designer gods. We sew them together out of whims and wishes, threading our desires and suppositions into something pretty that we can place on a shelf and nod at as we pass by. We smile briefly and nod at this comforting non-entity that we've allowed to reside out there at the periphery of our lives. Perhaps we even attach some importance to it. Maybe we even accept a little guidance from it. Projecting our own wants, needs, and desires, and opinions coming back to us under the guise of that's what my God values. If we're poor, maybe we opt for an off-the-shelf God. Mass-produced from slices of the spirit of the age. Requiring no thought. Only unquestioning submission to the current spiritual but not religious spirit of the age the fashion the iron smith takes a cutting tool works it over the coals he fashions it with hammers and he works it with his strong arm he becomes hungry and his strength fails he drinks no water and is faint the carpenter stretches a line he marks it out with a pencil he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. 
He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over that half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And out of the rest, he makes a god, his idol, and falls down before it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Some of you probably realized by the time I got to the end of that, that that's Isaiah chapter 44, verses 12 through 17. But I didn't introduce it to Scripture because I wanted you to hear it as a perfect description of how 21st century man thinks. That was written 700 years before Christ was born. But I ask you, have you ever heard a more perfect description of early 21st century my Godism? My God wouldn't do this. My God does that. Yeah, your God. Handmade out of your desires, wills. Handmade out of the fashions of the age. Handmade. To this, the God of the burning bush has a reply. I am who I am. I am not adjustable. I am not a product of your imaginations or wishes or needs. I am not the projection of a sociological consensus. I am not a cultural artifact. I don't change to keep up with the times. I won't be made to fit. You may not hammer me into a form of your liking. I reveal myself exactly as I am, and you must deal with me exactly as I am. Conditioned by nothing, conditioning all, I am the fountain of reality itself. All the fads and fashions of a million celebrities and all the acts and laws of a million politicians cannot alter this holy being by a plank length. I am what I am. You get no say in the matter. I do not stand for re-election. I am. Your approval or disapproval moves me not in the slightest, but oh, what blessings flow from what I am. I am the bread of life. Out of my incarnate flesh bringing nourishment to your starving soul. I am the light of the world, aside from which is only darkness and blindness, and without which there is no rationality nor understanding. I am the door through which alone you may enter into fellowship with all that is rest and all that is home and all that is good and true and beautiful and eternally desirable. I am the good shepherd who leads and guides and protects and guards, whose rod and staff administer a peace that passes all understanding even in the valley of the shadow of death. I am the resurrection and the life, the conqueror of the last enemy, breaker of the sting of death, the unshakable hope beyond all hope you dared hope for. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the true vine, supplying everything you will ever need, the ultimate source of every good in time and in eternity. I am the Word in whom are stored all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am the judge of all the earth. I am the Lord your God. And from the land of Egypt you know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. He makes himself very clear about who he is. Now remember those verbs. We only use three of them. One is left. After that proclamation, here's what God says. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. I pressed on you last week the covenantal duty of memory. Memory is not the, oops, I almost forgot, the Homer Simpson oop, you know, face palm. That's not what memory is. Covenantal memory is a constant, guiding, in-your-face awareness of the promises and the realities of God's protection over you, of the things that He has said He is going to do, and of the things that He requires. And what He is going to require of Israel over the next two years is their trust. He is going to require them to believe that he will do things that are absolutely impossible. Like turn the Nile River into blood. Like send frogs to wipe out a superpower. Lice, boils, and the Passover. He's going to require the Israelites to trust. And his requirement for you is exactly the same. He does not say to you, go out and earn this. Does not say that to you at all. He says, I've made promises. Believe them. Trust what I have said and I will deliver you out of whatever Egypt I have called you to be in. I will break the power of whatever brick kilns bring you their daily dose of intractable misery. I will triumph over that. I will break that. And I will bring you into a large, good, beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. What God calls Moses to, what God calls Israel to, what God calls us to, is a childlike trust that Daddy will do what he says he's going to do. And that is all. And armed only with that little child's heart, you are invincible. 
Lord God, we thank you for your infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being. We thank you that you have revealed that both before us and within us. That you have expended it to the limits of infinity to make us reconciled, to make us adopted, to make us your own. Repeatedly in Scripture you tell us that the faith with which we believe in you is a gift and we plead with you, give us that gift in ridiculous, absurd abundance every day that we may trust, that we may rest, that we may be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let a request be made known to God that the peace of God that passes all understanding may guard in our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In that name we pray. Amen.